Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Leaving Laodicea by Pastor Sean Wood. If you'd like to meet me in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. You sort of, every time somebody mentions the book of Revelation, you're kind of waiting for the Twilight Zone music in the background, but there's no Twilight Zone music this morning. Uh, Revelation's chapter 3. Uh, is anybody, actually I think it was on TV last night, has anybody here ever seen the movie You've Got Mail? Yes. All the blokes are like, yes. <laughs> One of those chick flicks we had to endure. Uh, but uh, for those who haven't seen it, it's about a, a male and a female. They're actually rival competitors in business, it turns out, in the end. But they, they, they strike up a relationship uh, uh, by, by distance and by email. And they start sending each other emails. And, and all of this is wonderful until it moves to the point where we have to go from emailing each other to seeing each other. Then things change dramatically. Then they, then they find out that they're rivals in business and it's, uh, you know, the women are crying and the men are like, get me out of here. But uh, the whole point of it is that the, the relationship was comfortable while it was at a distance. The relationship was great because we set the boundaries here. You know, I'll turn the computer off when I want. I don't have to email you if I don't want to. Uh, That's a great way to have a relationship. Uh, But it gets serious and we get to the pointy end when we stop sending emails and we have to come and meet each other. And can I say that the detriment and the danger in the church is we we can have a long distance relationship with God and too often it's comfortable to have a long-distance relationship with God. Too, too often it's nice because we can set the boundaries and the parameters and we can, we can hook up with God when we want to and we can disconnect when we want to. But today, Jesus wrote to seven churches in Revelation and the message is the same and Jesus doesn't want a long-distance relationship with anybody. Jesus doesn't want to converse with you by email. Jesus wants a personal and an intimate relationship with every one of us. And the option is, and the good news is, we actually have that option. And I want to unpack that as we look at this book. The book of Revelations, uh, we'll, we'll fight about the detail later. Okay, we'll, we'll fight about antichrists, we'll, we'll fight over numbers, we'll, we'll, we'll fight over whether Donald Trump's the antichrist or not, we'll, we'll put our boxing gloves on and we'll fight about all those weird and wonderful things later on, but none of those things apply to the first three chapters anyway, because what we find in the first chapter and what I believe is sad is all too often we miss that John is writing a revelation of Jesus Christ. And the church, if the church needs anything today, we need a larger revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, John writes in, in chapter 1 of Revelations, he writes, he says, uh, this Jesus that I walked the earth with for three and a half years, when I saw him now... I fell down like a dead man. You see, we like, the, we, we, we like the pictures of Jesus with the long blonde hair. Can I tell you that nobody in Palestine in the first century had blonde hair? It's not likely that they had blue eyes. And, and we love the pictures of Jesus with the long blonde flowing hair and the blue eyes and the little lambs running around his feet. Yet read Revelations. It's a different Jesus. Still the same compassion. Still the same love. But all of a sudden, as the millennials would say today, it just got, it just got real. And John is on the Isle of Patmos because everything's about to get a little bit real 
for those that are living in Palestine. The, the comfort you've enjoyed under Rome, it's about to get a little bit real because Nero's starting to short-circuit. In fact, the fact, the reason that John is on the Isle of Patmos is because Nero puts him in a boiling vat of oil to try and kill him, and when it has no effect on him, Nero says, get him out of my sight as far away as you possibly can. The, the Apostle John is released from the Isle of Patmos under a different emperor when Nero, of course, mysteriously dies. <clears throat> Who cares how that happened? But he's released from the... And he spends the last of his days. Uh, he's the only apostle that will see a natural death and he spends the last of his days up until about 98 ministering in Ephesus. But in the first chapter of Revelations, he has a message and the message, can I tell you, the message was not to you. It wasn't to you. None of scripture was actually written to you. It was written for you. It's recorded for you. But this book, the book of Revelation, is written to seven churches in Asia Minor. And it's written because things are about to get real. It's written because Nero's about to go cray-cray. And these guys are going to need to know exactly what it is that they believe. And Jesus has a message for each and every one of these seven churches. And as I was reading about this, and as I was praying through these letters, I, I asked myself a question. If Jesus wrote the rock a letter today, what would he say? But even more importantly, if Jesus wrote you a letter today, what would he say? Apart from the fact that he would say you have an awesome pastor. <laughs> it's in here, I can find it. I wonder if there would be a but. You see, every one of these seven churches, uh, apart from Philadelphia, they, they have a, Jesus comes to them and says, look, I see your works. I see your deeds. I see that you're holding fast. But. And for some of them, it is they have abandoned their first love. Have a listen to some of these. Ephesus, Jesus challenges them because they have abandoned their first love. To, to Pergamos, he writes and says, because he challenges them because they have began to hold on to fanciful, and evil teachings within the church. And uh, to Thyatira, he says uh, that he, he would challenge them not only about what they tolerate, but who it is that they tolerate and who it is that there's teaching that they tolerate. And Sardis, he would challenge them because of their hypocrisy. How's, these for, how's this for a letter from Jesus? This little Jesus, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus with the little lambs running around. He writes to Sardis and says, you know what? You guys have got a reputation of being alive, <laughs> but you're dead. That's not the performance review we were looking for, Jesus. But I've sat in many performance reviews and I've given performance reviews. And they go something like this. And I wonder if there would be a but for us. The remedies that Jesus offers to the churches, he offers them uh, to the... To the church in Ephesus, he would challenge them to remember and to reflect upon the distance that they have fallen. Remember the place that you once held with me. Remember how far it is that you've fallen. To others, he would call them to repentance. That's a word we don't hear in churches enough, I don't think, is the word repentance. 
To others, he would encourage them to hold fast. Here's one I think. Here's a message for the church today, globally. Not just this one, but, but globally. And this, this always challenges me, but, but he challenges two out of these seven churches. He challenges them to wake up. Wake up! And to the church at Laodicea, he's going to ask them to buy and to open a door. In verse 14, we find the letter to the church in Laodicea. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, and a message from God always comes through delegated authority, to the angel, to the messenger, to the pastor, or to the bishop of the church in Laodicea. Right, and Laodicea, in the time that John would be writing this letter, was a very prosperous city, starting to sound a little bit familiar. In fact, if you read uh, the seven letters to the churches, I think we can actually take some enormous challenges from all of them. There are pockets of the church today that are harbouring and uh, facilitating evil teachings. There are parts of the church today that absolutely need to wake up. How many of us could honestly sit here today and say that there either has not been a time or we're not in a time now where we have abandoned our first love? Notice who abandons who? Jesus doesn't go anywhere. I wonder today whether Jesus would challenge us about what it is that we tolerate and as he comes to the Laodicean church, they're, they're all too comfortable because everything's prosperous. Everything's going well. They are a city that is positioned on one of the most important places, on one of the most important trade routes. These guys' prosperity is guaranteed. They are a flourishing city comprised mostly of Jews, and it has a heavy Christian presence and influence. Everything's going hunky-dory. But as we're going to see with Laodicea, and a lesson that we must learn from all of Scripture is, you cannot base the favour and the blessing of God on what is happening around about you. Just because everything's going well doesn't always mean that God's blessing and favour is on your life. The enemy would love to sweetly lullaby people into comfort, into an eternity separated from Christ. And just because everything is falling apart on the outside of your life doesn't mean that God isn't blessing you. In fact, C.H. Spurgeon would say some of the greatest blessings that God could give anybody is affliction. The church flourishes when she is afflicted and persecuted. To the church in Laodicea, to the prosperous, flourishing, comfortable church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. I wonder if Jesus wrote the rocker letter today. Jesus might write, I see your food link. I see your op shop. I, I see the missions that you support. All good things in and of themselves, but we are all too tempted all too often to, to wrap our identity up in what it is that we do. We, we are all too often tempted to uh, find uh, our acceptance before God must be based on how good a boy or how good a girl I am. If it was based on that, none of us would have any acceptance. We don't 
do anything to gain acceptance from God. Everything we do, Paul says, you've got grace around the wrong way. Everything we do is because God has been so good to us. I know your works. I can see your deeds and your tasks. Is that what, that's exactly what works means. I can see the, the hungry people that you feed. I can see the poor people that you put clothes on. I can see all of those things. Jesus knows. Jesus sees their works. And yet a but is coming. These are harsh words. We do get to very comforting words before we end. But uh, how this is not a new thing for Jesus. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus says that many in those days will say, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And Jesus says to them, nothing concerning what they have done, but I never knew you. You see, eternal life has got nothing to do with what you do and everything about who you know. Jesus says to the Laodiceans, he says, I know your works. He goes on and he says, you are neither cold nor hot. It's always like Jesus to bring about a parable that we would all understand because the Laodiceans were known for their lukewarm water. Their water had to travel a long distance from where it was stored uh, through channels to reach anybody before they could drink it. They were well known in the area for lukewarm water. I don't know about water. I try to drink as less water as I can because it's got to be flavoured with coffee or I don't like it. But I can tell you now that if I I have a lukewarm cup of coffee and I take a sip of it, I spit it out. It's not pleasant. And for the English folk amongst us, it could be a cup of tea. Jesus says, you are either cold or hot. Would that you're either cold or hot. And it's interesting because, as many people point out, wouldn't Jesus say, I would rather you simply be hot? Well, yes, he would. And we'll get to that in a moment. But if you're cold or you're hot, we can deal with one of those two scenarios. You see, if you're cold and if you're indifferent and if you're a distance from God, we can deal with that. If you're hot, that's exactly where God wants you to be. But if you're in the middle, you're kind of kind of, yeah, I'm kind of happy where I am. And I want to warn everybody, if you're ever in a place where you're sitting there going, I'm happy, I'm comfortable, things are good, put on your seatbelts. Because God never leaves anybody in that place. Would that you were either cold or hot... So because you are lukewarm, and it's the only place in the Bible you will find the word lukewarm, and lukewarm means tepid or <clears throat> it means tepid or it's basically a metaphor for being half-hearted. You have become lukewarm and you're neither cold nor hot and I will spit you out of my mouth. Uh, lukewarmness is about an indifference and it's about being half-hearted. It's about uh, in uh, one of our... Core values is uh, from Romans chapter 12 where it says, do not lack in zeal but rather be fervent in spirit. And that word fervent means to be bubbling over or boiling over all the time. Jesus desires us as individuals not to be thermometers that read the temperature of the culture around us but rather we should be thermostats. Everywhere we go we should set the temperature. What happens when you have a meal on the stove? I don't know this. I don't cook. It's a good thing I don't. 
But for those that have a meal bubbling away on the stove, what happens the minute you take that off the hot plate? It begins the process of lukewarmness the minute you remove it from the heat source. The minute that any one of us are removed from the source of heat, we will begin to become lukewarm. We will begin begin to die down in temperature. What is the antidote to lukewarmness? Stay on the heat source. Stay connected to the one who can keep you burning at that temperature. Harsh words. Thank God I didn't write them. The greatest enemies of our fervencies are both complacency and contentment. We should be content with what God places in our hands, absolutely. What it is that God gives us physically, we should be content with. But there needs to become a spiritual discontentment inside of us where we are discontent to stay in the one place. So because you're lukewarm and you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And I don't think you can translate those words any other way. I'll spit you out of my mouth. For you say, listen to, listen to the self-deception. For you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing. You say that I need nothing. Listen to the self-reliance. What is the message that has been coming out of even the communion this morning and the message of the last couple of weeks is it's not about you. There was a, 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 great, a great evangelist, a guy by the name of Nabil Qureshi. He writes a book, uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, a Muslim that turns to Christ. His parents were evangelical Muslims. And uh, he has to make, and he gets to the point in his life, uh, after three years of building a relationship with a very godly Christian man, he, he gets to the point where he's, he says to somebody, he says, you need to pray for me because what I'm about to do is about to bring great shame on my family. I'm going to tell them that I have put my faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, I go and speak to my family and... They don't want anything to do with me and they're deeply upset. And he says, I walk away, he says, and I'm crying out to God. Why do I have to go through this? Why does this have to happen? And he says, I felt like God answered me and said, because it's not all about you. It's not about us. For you say, says Jesus, you say that you don't need anything. You've got this. Uh, myself and Josh and Steve were looking at Joshua chapter 7 this week where the Israelites have come into the promised land and they've conquered Jericho and everything's all good and wonderful. And then, of course, uh, uh, Joshua says to some spies, listen, go up to Ai and, and search out that place. And so they go up, they have a look and say, look, pff, it's a small place. You know, I wouldn't worry about it. Just end up two or 3,000 men. And Joshua, for the first time, does something completely different that he hadn't done in the past. He does not consult God before he sends the army up. And those two or 3,000 are humiliated, embarrassed, 36 are killed, and the rest are chased away. And it says that the hearts of Israel melted. What did you fail to do, Joshua? You thought you had it done. You thought you had everything worked out in your own steam. It's amazing how God is able to show us who it is that's in charge. For you say I am rich, listen to the comfort. You say that I have prospered and I need nothing, not realising. Have a listen to what Jesus says to this church. 
not realising that, in fact, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. That word wretched is distressed and miserable. The word pitiable is an extended word of wretched, which is a greater degree of misery. And the word naked speaks of metaphorically of the carnal condition of the church. It's about, it's about being exposed. It's about having our shame. You cannot stand before God naked. You can't. Adam and Eve needed clothing. They tried to do it themselves. God did it properly. Not realising these guys are really self-deceived and in fact, they may be saved, but the truth is they are lost. And the greatest danger to anybody who is lost is not actually realising you are lost because you will just keep wandering and getting further and further and further away. I remember when I was in the forestry, we had these guys, if you ever heard the saying, you can't see the forest for the trees, these guys sum it up beautifully. And when I was in the forestry, uh, for three months of every year, we used to have to prune. And the only place they gave us to prune was a place underneath the blue tier on the east coast. And it was always very, very thick scrub. It was overcome with vine. Uh, The only thing we didn't have was blackberries, praise God, but it was a terrible place to to try and prune trees. You had to kind of try and navigate two straight lines amongst thick scrub and work your way through trees. And once you got off the track, you were lucky if you could see five or six metres in front of you. And and these guys would begin to drift. They would begin to get lost. And all of their focus was on the the next five or six metres. They couldn't see. uh, they, They would become disheartened because they just want to be able to get to the end of their rows and have a break. Uh, And the only remedy really to keep everything in line was for me to run ahead with a a higher ladder and stand up above the canopy. And I used to stand up on top of the ladder and guide these guys through so that they could know where they were going. They were running into each other, cutting each other off. And their problem was their perspective. So often we get wrapped up in the five or six metres that is surrounding us, not realising the dangers, not realising the bigger picture presents a completely different picture. But Jesus doesn't leave anybody in this place. This is what I love about Jesus. Jesus never comes with a rebuke and leaves us there. There is a remedy. Moving on, he says, I counsel you. And that word counsel is, as we would understand it in a legal term, uh, <clears throat> I hope nobody has to use legal counsel for any reason, but for, for those that do, uh, we, we would solicit a lawyer who would give us counsel, would give us legal advice. That's what, that's what Jesus is doing here to these guys. I'm giving you counsel. I'm giving you advice. And what is a lawyer preparing you for? What is, what is all of this legal advice about? It's about the day when you stand before the judge and nothing is different for Jesus. Jesus says, I'm counseling you guys. I'm going to give you some advice now to remedy the place that you're in and prepare you all for the day that you will stand before the judge. 
Jesus has said to them, here's point A, here's where you are, point B is over here, and I'm now going to give you the advice of what it looks like to move forward. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may not see, so that you may see, excuse me. And all of a sudden, a... uh, an elephant is introduced to the room because, hang on a second, Jesus, you just told us we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked and now you're telling us to buy from you? How are we supposed to buy anything? We don't have anything according to what you've just told us. Jesus does give us this answer. The word buy here means to frequent a marketplace. That's basically what it means in the Greek, to frequent a particular marketplace. And what Jesus is saying to the church at Laodicea is, he says, I counsel you to buy from me or to come to me. Don't go anywhere else looking for righteousness. Don't go anywhere else trying to find the satisfaction. I counsel you to frequent my marketplace. The church today, 2,000 years on, we go to so many different marketplaces before we go to Jesus. We go to so many other places before we come to Christ and we should always come to Jesus first. Jesus says to frequent my marketplace. But but how many of us say, we'll get to you later, Jesus? How many of us put Jesus on the back burner? Jesus asks us to buy from him gold refined by the fire. Gold can only be refined when it is applied to a heat source. In Corinthians, we are told that we will all stand before God and judgment will come upon each and every single one of us and fire will be applied to our lives and what is burnt up and disappears, we will suffer loss for and what remains, or that which is golden, will pertain into eternity. And Jesus is saying, buy gold from me. Don't worry about the gold of this earth. Don't worry about how flourishing and how prosperous you may be. Come to me for the real gold. Whenever heat is applied to gold, all of the impurities float to the surface. And the grading of the gold gets ever more precious. Laodicea was known for its lukewarm water. It was known for its textile manufacturing and the manufacturing of garments. And it was known for uh, making, uh, it was ointment for skin conditions. And now Jesus applies both of those last two when he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you actually may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Jesus says, come to me and buy my garments. John Calvin says it beautifully when he says that Jesus didn't come to make any of us righteous. He came to be our righteousness. Huge difference. Because what it actually means is The only place you can get garments worthy enough to stand before the God of all creation is from the person of Jesus Christ. But when we do stand before him in his garments, they are spotless. What a a divine privilege. Clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes 
so that you may see. Verse 19. Jesus says, To those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. And the word zealous means to, it means to seek and desire eagerly, but it's, it's used a lot differently here, and it's only used this way in the New Testament here. And it speaks uh, about being zealous, about the fact that it's the whole of our being that is zealous. And I would propose, based on this word, that the Church of Jesus Christ needs more zealots. Now, too often, too often we pass zealots off as being fanatical or radicals or extremists. Absolutely. And I think we need some more extremists in the church of Jesus Christ. You know, zealots of these days, these guys didn't have a second life. Their whole life was whatever it was that was passionate. Matthew, the tax collector, was also a zealot, a righteous zealot. But to be a zealot means one that is an uncompromising partisan. That's what it means to be a zealot. We could do with less compromise in the church. Be zealous and repent. And repentance, you cannot have salvation without repentance. You cannot have a life with Christ without repentance. You can't. I don't, know how, I don't care how it's packaged, there must be repentance. And repentance, the best way to understand repentance, it is a change of mind, yes. It is a change of purpose, yes. But it is basically turning our lives in a completely different direction. And we always focus on the negative side of repentance. We always focus on what it is that we're turning away from. And that's not the focus of the word. The focus of the word repent is who it is that we're turning towards. And when you turn towards the person of Christ... You're leaving all that other stuff behind. And the problem with the Laodiceans was they weren't heading in this direction and they weren't heading in this direction. They were standing in neutral and going, well, I'm kind of happy where I am. Can I tell you that in the vehicle of God, there is no neutral. You are either in a forward gear or you're in reverse. You are either walking towards God or you are drifting away from him. There's no neutral ground. Jesus says, be zealous. Let your zealousness and your fervency overtake you and repent, which means they have to walk in a different direction. Now, as we come to the verse 20, I want to highlight one thing. Jesus is asking uh, these people here, he's asking them to repent. He's now going to, uh, the next verse is a beautiful verse that can be applied in many different ways. Scripture always has one interpretation. It may have many applications. It has one interpretation. So if somebody says, well, that's how you interpret it, I interpret it this way, they're wrong. You can apply it differently. It has one interpretation. Please remember that Jesus is actually talking to believers here. Yes, we can apply these wonderful words that come next to those who don't know Jesus. I get that. But here, right now, this audience here are Christian people that Jesus is writing to. He says to them, you need to be zealous and repent. Stop being half-hearted. Stop being lukewarm. And then verse 20, I love this verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. What does it look like? Jesus is knocking on people's doors here this morning. Jesus knocks on our doors all the time. How does Jesus knock? In many, many different ways. Jesus may knock on your door through the word. Jesus may knock on your door through sermons. Jesus may knock on your door through circumstances. Jesus may knock on your door through other people. Jesus knocks both by mercies and graces as well as by afflictions and persecution. Jesus knocks on our door and he stands at people's doors and he knocks. And I love these words. Why? Because Jesus doesn't kick the door in. Jesus doesn't look for a back door. He doesn't look for another entrance. He says, I just stand at the front door and I knock. And the sad truth is that all too often we're happy to leave Jesus out on the porch knocking. We're happy to have you out there, Jesus. Because I'm in control while you're out on the porch. And while you're knocking, I am in control. By knocking on our hearts, Jesus is wooing us and he seeks our cooperation. I'll unpack this more as we go along. People are saying, I know people are already asking, what does it mean to open the door? We'll have, we'll have a look at that in a moment. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, the, the key to opening the door is we first must hear the voice of Christ. But what a beautiful picture this paints. You ever had, uh, I know when I was in primary school, I had this kid that uh, kept coming around of our house and he wouldn't just knock. He'd knock and go, hi, hello, Sean. And it's like, he couldn't stand there and say, I didn't hear you knocking because he'd say, well, you must have heard me yelling. And Jesus isn't just knocking gently, but Jesus is calling out to us. Jesus goes on and says, we must open the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And this opening the door is us allowing access to God. There are people sitting in this room today and we've all been there, and we likely may be there in the future, that have rooms in our house that we don't want anybody, including Jesus, to open that door. There are people sitting in this room today that have past hurts that go back a long way, and you have closed off that door, you have locked it, you've put the police tape up, you've put the crime scene around it, and says, nobody's coming in here. There's people sitting in this room today. And opening the door to Christ is opening him and allowing him access to all those places in our lives where we would prefer to shut the door. And you're right. There's people sitting here today that are doing an amazing job at keeping that a secret. I know people that can put all the hurt of the past into boxes and and into rooms and lock them up and and put them away and file them away. Jesus knows they're there. You can hide it from us. But Jesus knows they're there and he's knocking on the door and he says, I want to come in. And if you are going to enjoy a deeper, fuller, richer fellowship with Christ, you have to open the door and let him in. If I asked here today how many people have been hurt in church, I reckon nearly every single person would put their hand up. As much as I hate this statement, it's probably true. If you haven't been hurt in church, hang around five minutes. There's something that happens when you put a bunch of humans together. 
We tend to act humanly. Inhumanely, but humanly all at the same time. There are people here that have got relationship hurts that go back a long way. There are people here that have been hurt in church. There are people here that have locked off doors to Christ. And can I tell you that Jesus is knocking on those doors? And can I tell you there is no other person in the universe that I would let in either, apart from him. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And in the first century, this was the greatest description of, of communion and fellowship, was to be able to sit at the table and have rich... For, for, God doesn't want a distant relationship with us. Opening the door will take commitment, yes. It's like going to the next level. For those of us that could cast our memory back to high school, I can only just cast mine back that far. But for those of us that can cast our, our back to primary school and back to high school, when remember when we used to have, I know relationships that began in high school and finished before lunch. But they were serious, man. They were, they were serious. And, and, and relationships, I, I knew relationships in high school where uh, it was, you know, yeah, okay, we're kind of together, but, 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 but don't hang around me at lunchtime and, and I don't want you holding my hand. But we knew it got serious when we wrote their name on our hand. That's when it got serious, right? And, and, and in mass, when we put down the mass book and we wrote something inside our mass book and, and, and their name was there, the relationship all of a sudden began serious. But if you, ever mo- if you were in high school and you ever moved to holding hands, you guys were married. That's, that, the bells rang, the relationship's on. It's like they're married. But who knows that that was just shallow kind of relationship. And... What Jesus is proposing here is, Jesus is saying, I don't just want you to write my name on your hand, and, and I just don't want you to write my name in, the, in your mass book. Jesus, what Jesus is actually doing here is, he's, you see, the love of God in 1 John is spoken of as betrothal. He has betrothed his love to us. This is Jesus down on one knee, with the calf, ready for the celebration, and he's got the ring in his hand. And Jesus is saying, I don't want to date you anymore. I want to be joined. And the message of Scripture is the same, right from Genesis all the way through to the end of Revelation, the message is the same. God demands that we are single-hearted, just like marriage. Paul says in Ephesians, as he's talking about man and wife and marriage, he says, I'm speaking about the mystery of the gospel and Jesus Christ and his church. The truth is, the Laodiceans and many of us all too often are happy to date Jesus and never take it to the next level. You see, when we're dating Jesus, we can pick the phone up when it suits us. We make appointments with Jesus. I'll I'll see you on Sunday, Jesus. Jesus doesn't want to just see you on Sunday for an hour and a half. Jesus 
doesn't want a long-distance relationship. Jesus wants to put the ring on every one of our fingers and to have deep personal communion with every single one of us. If we're honest in this place this morning, many of us leave Christ on one knee. Many of us are happy to have him out on the pool. For those of us that are married, we pray for you. But apart from that, for those of us that are married, we know that our spouse knows us like nobody else knows us. For those of us that are married, we know that we drop the curtains, we drop the masks, we drop the facade. And if you think it's only you that does that, you need to know that Jesus is saying, I want to do that for you too. What Jesus is saying is, I want to just, Jesus wants the veil to fall away. He wants the curtains to fall away. He wants us to be able to see him for who he really is. That's why Jesus says that I will eat with him and he with me. This is, this is a two-way relationship where we get to know Jesus in greater measures. I share this on Sunday. Timothy Keller says that experiencing God is like when the truth of God goes from understanding truth to standing under his word. We're experiencing, we know him more. I now know that this is the God that I serve. But we have for too long lived half-hearted for Jesus. We have too long Jesus has been a convenient carriage at the end of our train. You see, Jesus spoke about people who build their houses. You can build them on the sand or you can build them on the rock. The only difference with the house, they both look the same. They both look the same. They're both nice-looking houses, everything like that. But the problem was with the foundations. And, And Jesus says, I don't want to be a room in your house. If you want to build your house and you want to build your life, you go ahead. But I don't want to be a room that you tack on the back end. I want to be the house. Then you divide your life up into the rooms. Jesus would say, I don't want to be a carriage at the back end of your train. I want to drive. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What a beautiful promise that is. Greatest promise in the New Testament. I will come in and eat with him. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Beautiful words. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This morning, I would repeat those last words. To anybody in this room who has an ear, I pray that you would hear what it is that the Spirit is saying to you today. I don't read the book of Revelations often either because I struggle to get past the first three chapters. To the Ephesians who had abandoned their first love, what did Jesus say to them? Do the works you did at first. Can you remember when, when you're first born again, when you went to every prayer meeting, you wouldn't miss a church service, you're in the Word every morning, but then the relationship drifts. Same when we're married. If you don't work at the relationship, it can sometimes drift and you become like ships 
passing in the night. I'd ask us all to stand this morning as I close in prayer. And I want to ask you a question this morning. Will you open the door to Jesus? Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.